Hello, you are listening to True Crime Time, the podcast. I'm Megan, here again with my cats, Carmen San Diego and Binks. You might be able to hear one of them scratching in the litter box. There's that. This is episode number six. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing with your fellow murder Muppets. Uh, Today I want to talk to you guys about Ted Bundy. There's a new Netflix special out. And I just wanted to give you guys the basics of Ted in this case. I don't know what all is included in, oh my god, the litter box, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know what's included in this new special. Um, Where it starts from, what it covers, does it give you the groundwork. So that's why I'm doing this. Um, Also, this was requested, and who am I to deny the people what they want? While I was doing research on him, I actually found an Irish podcast, which I found absolutely thrilling. I love an Irish accent. Um, so he's known the world over, but of course, not for great reasons. Uh, Ted Bundy is for sure one of the most prolific serial killers probably ever. I also got information from Wikipedia Murderpedia, don't forget about that one, and another podcast called Criminology. We have a lot to get through, so here we go. Ted, full name Theodore Robert Cowell, was born November 24th, 1946, so he's a Sagittarius just like me, uh, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. His mom's name was Louise. Her first name was really Eleanor, but she only ever went by Louise. Uh, they were never sure who his father was, but his birth sh- uh, certificate stated that it was some dude who was an Air Force veteran, Lloyd Marshall. Apparently, Louise would later claim she was seduced by a sailor named Jack Worthington, but detectives were unable to find this name in any kind of military registry. Uh, Some family members were even suspicious that Ted might have been fathered by Louise's own violent, abusive father, Samuel Cowell. Uh, There's no material evidence of this, but, you know, that's not a great start. So Louise returns home to Philadelphia. Ted stays alone at the home for unwed mothers for three months where nurses and workers cared for him until his mother came back to get him. It's been said that she didn't even really want to, and she had initially planned on giving him up for adoption. Experts have said they think this missed crucial bonding time with his mother may have been the reason he was unable to bond with others throughout his life. I'm guessing because of the stigma at that time around... Louise being an unwed mother, her parents told everyone that Ted was their son and Louise was his sister. This is also what he was raised to believe. I read a few different reports about how he came to find out that Louise was his actual mother. Um, Someone found the birth certificate and showed him. He found it himself. According to Anne Rule, who we will learn more about later, but for now, just know she's the true crime writer. Um, a new Ted personally, she didn't believe he came to learn that Louise was his real mother until 1969. Uh, he would have been around 23 
it's been said that Ted had a lot of resentment toward his mother for never speaking with him about any of this and letting him find out on his own, which I get. Um, Ted had apparently given conflicting reports about life with his grandparents. Sometimes he spoke of them warmly, but later he would say that his grandfather was a tyrannical bully and a bigot. He basically hated everyone and everything that was different or differed from his views. He would beat his wife. He would, you know, kick family pets. He would, you know, kind of be an asshole to neighborhood animals. He lashed out at his own children, uh, once throwing one of his daughters down the stairs for something as simple as oversleeping. So that can't be a fun way to wake up. Uh, It's been reported that he would sometimes be observed shouting at nothing, and some wondered if he was mentally ill. At any rate, he was a real asshole and a bully. So a real great guy. Uh, There's no way growing up in that kind of environment, you know, it wouldn't have some effect on you as a person. Of course, it's going to, you know, kind of shape you in some way or another. Uh, His grandmother was described as obedient and timid and would from time to time undergo electroshock therapy for her depression, which was probably in some way caused by her horrible husband. I know depression is biological, so don't yell at me about that. Um, In this case, I don't think he helped, though. Okay? So Ted's Ted's grandmother or mom he thinks. She really is not in a place to help anyone else in her household. She's just, you know, kind of hanging on herself. Um, Apparently, Ted showed some violent tendencies from an early age. His aunt, Julia, who he was also told was his sister, recalled that once she woke up in her bed surrounded by knives from the kitchen and Ted was standing nearby staring at her, he was three. So, Around the age of five, Ted and his sister mom moved to Tacoma, Washington to live with her cousins. She had changed her last name at this time to Nelson, I think to avoid um, scrutiny, kind of little distance between herself and her family as to not bring them any shame, which is nice. Um, But this also brought Ted a new identity, changing her name. About a year after the move, Ted's mom met and married Johnny Bundy, who was a hospital cook. They were married in the same year and Ted's name was changed again. So a lot of upheaval in young Ted's life. Ted wasn't crazy about his stepdad. He thought that he was kind of dumb. So not intelligent, unmotivated. He resented him for his lack of ambition and Ted would never accept him as a father figure, even though it's been said Uh, that Johnny tried to include him in family outings and activities. Johnny and Louise would have four children together, but Ted would say he always felt like a bastard and an outsider. Uh, Ted would give conflicting accounts of his high school days. Sometimes he was a loner. Sometimes he was well-liked and had friends. Even though generally he never had any real connection with people, but he was incapable of that because he was a sociopath. Um, It's been said that Ted admired people who lived affluent lifestyles and would steal things he couldn't afford to feel like he had attained some kind of status. He also liked to ski because he felt that that was a thing 
that people with money did. But he would forge lift tickets um, and just kind of do shady things in order to, to do that, to get to do that. He felt a sense of entitlement to things he wanted and had no trouble getting them by whatever means necessary. This sense of entitlement would go with him throughout his life. He liked to possess things and discard them at will. Does that sound like foreshadowing? Because it is. Ted goes to university. He spent a year at one school, then transferred to University of Washington in 1967. The same year he became involved with a classmate. She was most commonly known as Stephanie Brooks, but has been known by a bunch of other pseudonyms as well. So he's seeing her, he drops out of school, and he's just working a bunch of minimum wage jobs. He even volunteered for Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and attended the uh, Republican National Convention as one of his delegates. Stephanie broke up with him. She thought he lacked ambition, was just not happy about the trajectory his life was taking. But apparently, Ted was devastated by this news and kind of started to spiral. He started traveling all over, visiting family and such, uh, Colorado, Arkansas, Philadelphia. He did a semester at Temple University. According to Anne Rule, who again we'll get more into later, this is when she thinks he discovered the truth about his mom and who she really was. Um, She believes this is the time he visited the office of birth records and finally found out the truth. Um... I'm kind of conflicted about that because I don't really understand. Did like did he suspect Louise was his mom for real after his parents let him move with her to Washington? Like how do they explain that to him? I wonder. Um did he know for sure before then? Is this when he actually found out? We're not going to be sure, but I just thought that was interesting. Um it's around 1969 that Ted meets Elizabeth Klopfer Klopfer, sorry. Um, and he would have a stormy relationship with her for years to come, even as far in the future as 1976. So, mid-1970s, Ted is a bit more goal-oriented. He re-enrolls at University of Washington, this time as a psychology major. He was an honor student. He was generally well-liked by professors and even took a job at Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, at a Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. This is where he would meet Anne Rule. Here we go. According to Wikipedia, Rule was a former Seattle police officer and aspiring crime writer who would later write one of the definitive Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me. She saw nothing disturbing in Ted's uh, personality and at the time described him as kind, salacious, or salacious, pardon me, and empathetic. So he's pretty good at hiding what's going on in his head and in his life. Um, He graduated from UW and did some more political stuff. He's doing sneaky things. He's shadowing his opponents, um, recording speeches, Um, doing things like that to bring back to his team for analysis. Never trust a politician. Am I right? Uh, He decided this was a good time to go to law school. So he's doing law school. He's doing work for the Republican Party. 
At this time, he rekindles his relationship with Stephanie Brooks, who is really into new motivated Ted. He also kept seeing Elizabeth at the same time. He pulled this off without either of them knowing um, about the other. Stephanie was further away and would have to fly to spend time with him, so I guess he didn't think he would have a hard time pulling that off. And apparently he didn't. Um, Ted and Stephanie actually talked about getting married, but in January 1974, he cut off contact with her. Um, when she was finally able to reach him, she wanted to know what the hell, as all of us would. So I guess ghosting has been a thing for ages and ages. Um, but he offered her no explanation. She believes, and I'm with her, that everything about them getting back together had been something he had planned to get back at her for dumping him in the first place. So, what a nice guy, right? Uh, It was at this time he started skipping classes at law school, and women had begun or had been disappearing. The year that women began to disappear, Ted was actually the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission and wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. This fucking guy. There is no official beginning to Ted's murders. Ted has always been very elusive. He's told a lot of different people a lot of different things about his earliest crimes, so it's hard to tell when they truly began. He told one person he attempted his first kidnapping in Ocean City, um, that's New Jersey, in 1969 but did not actually commit murder until he was in Seattle in 1971. He told a psychologist that he killed two women in Atlantic City, that's also New Jersey, in 1969 while visiting family. He kind of beat around the bush to a detective that he may have committed a murder in 1972 in Seattle and that maybe he killed a hitchhiker in 1973. So you got the idea. He's very elusive. He's just kind of beating around the bush dropping hints, but there's nothing, you know, for sure. Um, it would have been nice for him to admit to those things. So those families get some closure. Um, but that's not how it worked out, unfortunately. So detective Robert Keppel and Anne Rule believe he probably started killing as a teenager. Uh, There was actually circumstantial evidence that he murdered an eight-year-old girl when he was only 14 years old, but this was something he denied. His earliest documented murders were when he was 27 years old in 1974. So, you know, again, unfortunately, we don't really know the true depth of all he's done. Um, Interestingly, a lot of serial killers have a kind of template for their victims. Sometimes... It's a parental figure, like in the last episode with Ed Kemper and his mom. Sometimes it's a lost loved one. Ted was no different here. He favored, quote, pretty girls with long, dark hair parted in the middle, just like his first love, Stephanie Brooks. They mostly looked similar to her. So, getting right into his murders, he basically had two modes of operation. He started by breaking into houses or apartments and bludgeoning and sexually assaulting the occupant or occupants. He also would feign some kind of injury in public. That was something else he would do. Um, He would 
use an arm sling, a cast on his leg, crutches, and so on, and be struggling with something like books or briefcase boxes um, to lure unsuspecting females to help him to his vehicle. He would kind of lure them to his car and knock them out with a crowbar and shove them inside. And he had removed the passenger seat, so he was prettily, uh, prettily, wow, that's a new word. So he was pretty easily able to conceal this um, because it wasn't easy for other people to see that there was someone laying on the floor. He was said to be very good looking. I personally do not agree with this, um, but also incredibly charming. So maybe the combo worked for people. I don't know. I don't get it. But this would disarm the women. And of course, they're not going to think that this seemingly sweet, well-dressed, injured guy is going to attack them. I know that I would like to say I wouldn't have fallen for that. But who knows? You know, you don't know until you're in the moment. You want to be polite. You want to help someone out, especially someone like that, especially someone with an injury like that. Um... I'm sure I would have felt like a real dick if I turned down, you know, helping someone like that. But not after this. So I guess the moral of the story here is to always be on guard with strangers. Duh. Um, so women are going missing. Not too far apart either. Here's the thing. It would take forever to go into each separate incident. So I'm going to give you a timeline instead. If you're interested in the complete details definitely just do a search online. There's tons of articles that detail each specific incident. Here we go. Try to pay attention to how close these dates are. January 5th, 1974. Joni Lenz is attacked in her apartment. She survives. February 1st, 1974. Linda Ann Healy is abducted from her apartment. March 12th, 1974, Donna Manson is abducted from the Evergreen College campus. April 17th, 1974, Susan Rancor is abducted from Central Washington Street campus. May 6th, 1974, Kathy Parks is abducted from the Oregon Street campus. June 1st, still 1974, Brenda Ball is abducted from Burien, Washington. Uh, June 11th, I'm going to stop saying 1974, I'll let you know when the date changes. George Ann Hawkins is abducted from an alley near the University of Washington. June 17th, Brenda Baker's body is found. They were not able to determine, to determine when she had been abducted. July 14th, two separate incidents on this day. Both Janice Ott and Denise Nasland are abducted. September 2nd, a Jane Doe is abducted in Iowa. Fall 1974, he enters law school. He decides this is a great time to do that. Um, September 7th, body parts from three separate victims are located near a lake. October 2nd, Nancy Wilcox is abducted. October 18th, Melissa Smith is abducted from Utah. And we're not done yet. October 27th, Melissa Smith's body is found near Salt Lake City. October 31st, Halloween, Laura Amy, it looks like, is abducted from Utah. 
November 8th, fucks up an, uh, an abduction of Carol DeRanche, who is such a badass. Definitely look up her story. I think they also um, are doing an interview with her in the new documentary that's out today. Or a docu-series, whatever it is. Um, sadly, even though he botched that abduction, he still successfully abducts Debbie Kent the same day. She is not so lucky. Thanksgiving, 1974 still. Laura Amy's body is found. Now we're in 1975. January 12th. Abducts Karen Campbell from Aspen, Colorado. February 18th. Karen's body is found near the hotel she had been staying at. March 3rd, the skulls of four victims are found near Taylor Mountain. I believe that's California. March 15th, Julie Cunningham is abducted from Vail, Colorado. April 23rd, I just lost my place. Ah. Melanie Cooley, that's who we're talking about, right? Great. So, April 6th, Melanie Cooley is abducted from her school in Colorado. I think that's what I said. The 23rd of April, Melanie Cooley's body is found about 20 miles from her hometown in Colorado. May 6th, Lynette Culver is abducted from her school playground in Idaho. June 28th, Susan Curtis is abducted from the campus of BYU. July 1st, we're back to Colorado, where Shelly Robertson is abducted. And July 4th, Nancy Baird is abducted from Utah. So you can see that from the locations, he's moving around a lot. If you know a lot about this case, some of these names may or may not be familiar. A lot of these victims have appeared with different pseudonyms in different articles or books. Um, But I I cross-checked. The dates are all the same. It's just there's a lot of different names. So the police are poking around. Quite a few witnesses came forward talking about a man in the sling or cast or whatever, speaking with the person who went missing shortly before they went missing. Never too far away was his trusty Volkswagen Beetle, which was literally a death trap. He would use whatever method to capture these women he thought would work. Uh, He would even pretend to be a police officer at times. Um, Just so you guys are aware, this is a monster case. And I'm just trying to give you kind of like the Cliff Notes equivalent. So you're prepared to do research on your own. You're prepared to watch Ted Bundy tapes. That's what it's called, right? Great. Um, So while all of these disappearances and break-ins and beatdowns and murders were being committed, Ted worked at the Department of Emergency Services, which was a state government agency that was involved in searching for missing women like Ted. Come on. What a fantastic and horrible fucking chameleon. It's brilliant and diabolical all at once. Who is going to suspect that guy? I hate it. It was at this job that he would meet and date Carol Ann Boone, who was someone who would play an important role in his life later on. Uh, One of the things that is especially disturbing about Ted's case is that after he would kill his victims, he would dispose of them somewhere outside, but wherever he disposed of them, he would return and engage in necrophilia repeatedly. He would return more than once, 
um, until the bodies were too decayed for him or animals had interfered with the bodies um, to the point that he wasn't able to do so. He would later remark that he liked the color blue they would start to take on both on their skin, but especially their fingernails. Also, I read sometimes he would shampoo their hair or apply makeup to them. Um, and that's fucking creepy and gross. He decapitated at least 12 of his victims and for a while even kept some of their heads in his apartment as mementos. So this is a big mess, right? In August 1975, he was arrested when he randomly sped away from a police officer on patrol. The officer's presence probably spooked him and he freaked out. Um, He still got pulled over. The officer searched the car after he noticed that, hey, the front seat was removed and laid across the back seat. And that's weird. Here's what else he found in the car. A ski mask, a pantyhose mask handcuffs, a crowbar, trash bags, rope, an ice pick, some other more regular things. Ted said uh, that the ski mask was just for skiing. He loved to ski after all, but the handcuffs he found in the dumpster, which is also my favorite place to find handcuffs. They find these items and information suspicious. Imagine that. And then also tied together that he might fit the description of a suspect in a kidnapping case, um, which would be the one that I just mentioned with Carol Durange. So they pursue it further. They search his apartment. They find a couple of interesting things, but nothing of real significance um, and nothing they could detain him for. So he got to go free for a while. But they're on to him now. Uh, Ted is placed under 24-hour surveillance And detectives fly out to interview his girlfriend, Elizabeth, who has a lot to say. She told detectives that before he moved, she had found things in the apartment that she couldn't understand, such as crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he just straight up admitted that he stole, a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking, though, surgical gloves, an oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment because where else do you keep your oriental knives? Also, a bag full of women's clothing. (sighs) Girl, I don't think I would have understood that either. Um, She mentioned that he was in debt and had a lot of expensive things and she suspected a lot of it had probably been stolen. She had actually asked him about a new TV that he had gotten and told the detectives When she confronted him about it, he said, if you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. So yeah, I would say she had a right to be suspicious. Um, There were some other odd things she noticed too, like when he would freak out when she talked about cutting her hair. It was long and parted in the middle. Sound familiar? Or perhaps the times when she would wake up in the middle of the night and find him under the covers with a flashlight just looking at her body. The detectives were obviously also troubled by this information and from there went about finding um, finding out if they had been with her on the nights where the victims were with her on the nights when the victims had vanished. They were able to confirm that he had not, in fact, been with her. And not too long after her conversation with these detectives... She was interviewed by a homicide detective from Seattle, 
and found out about Ted's relationship with Stephanie Brooks that had gone on when he was still with her. So Ted, thinking he's making a smart move, sells his car to some teenager. The cops find it and impound it. They search it. They find loads of trace evidence linking him, linking him to multiple victims, including badass Carol Durange. On October 2nd, they throw him in a police lineup and Carol identifies him as the officer who tried to abduct her because that's who he was playing that day. They don't have enough to charge him on anything other than aggravated kidnap and attempted criminal assault, so that's what they did. He was freed on bail, which is nonsense, and lived with Elizabeth, who for some reason had still not broken up with him despite all of the really weird and coincidental evidence, but I don't want to blame her. You know, she's been through some shit too at this point. Um, He lives with her through his indictment and trial. His trial commenced in February 1976. He was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. Um, This is a direct copy-paste from Wiki. In October... He was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Uh, So obviously, he got help from somewhere. Also, why are you hiding in the bushes in prison? You're still in prison. Calm down. Get out of the bushes. The good news is, later that month, they decided to charge him with murder um, for Karen Campbell. He was transferred to Colorado a few months later. So Ted decides to be his own attorney in this next trial, which, you know, when has that ever worked out ever? But because of this, the judge allowed him to not be shackled in any way, which was a mistake. During a recess, he asked if he could use the court's law library to do research for his case. Um, Hidden from sight by a bookcase, he opened the window and jumped out. The bastard sprained his ankle, but hoofed it a long way, all the way to Aspen Mountain, where he broke into a cabin, where nobody was, fortunately. He stole clothes, food, and a rifle. Uh, He wandered for a few days, at one point breaking into a trailer for more supplies. He stole a car and decided to drive back into Aspen, but his car was weaving because he was freaking exhausted. Um... So he was noticed by the cops. He was pulled over. He had been on the run for six days. Ted's ass is thrown back in jail in Glenwood Springs. So he is in jail awaiting his new trial. But unbeknownst to his jailers, he had a plan. On December 30th, he took books, files, whatever else, and put them in his bed under the blankets to make it look like he was sleeping. He climbed up, uh, climbed up through the bars in his ceiling where he had already sawed a hole previously with tools he had gotten from other prisoners and smuggled in by visitors and Carol Ann Boone. Remember her from before? She's back. These good friends of his had also supplied him with cash and a floor plan of the jail. So he breaks into the apartment of the jailer. He was out with his wife that night. Um, I should also mention that the jail at this time was kind of working with the skeleton crew because of the holidays, so less less staff than usual. So, Ted changes into regular clothes, just walked out the front door. 
He stole a car that broke down while he was driving it. Luckily for him, a kind stranger picked him up and gave him a ride to Vail, Colorado. Didn't even try to kill him. Isn't that nice? He then caught a bus to Denver, subsequently a flight to Chicago. Back at the jail, they did not discover he was missing for 17 whole hours. So Ted's on the run again. From Chicago, he goes to Ann Arbor and watches a college football game, because that's what you do when you're on the run. He steals a car, drives to Atlanta, hops a bus to uh, Tallahassee, Florida. He rented a room near the FSU campus under a fake name, Chris Hagen. One week after he gets to Florida, on January 15, 1978, and this is really heavy, so bear with me, he enters the Chi Omega. I didn't go to college, so I don't know if that's how you say it. Chi? Chi? Um, Omega sorority house through a rear door that had a problem locking. At about 2.45 a.m., he attacked Margaret Bowman in her bedroom with a piece of wood as she slept. He then strangled her with a pair of pantyhose. He moved into Lisa Levy's bedroom and beat her until she was unconscious. He strangled her, sexually assaulted her, and bit her on the left side of her butt. He moved into Kathy Kleiner's bedroom. He broke her jaw. He lacerated her shoulder deeply. He moved on to Karen Chandler. He broke her jaw too. She had a crushed finger. <coughs> Excuse me. As well as a concussion. All of these attacks took place in about 15 minutes. At this point, he left the sorority house and broke into an apartment several blocks away. Where he attacked another FSU student, Cheryl Thomas, but she lives, although she did suffer permanent injuries as a result of the attack. So, things have obviously hit a peak, and we start to unravel again. On February 8th, Ted steals an FSU van, which is not a super bright call. He tried to abduct a 14-year-old girl, um, but was foiled, paper turn, by her brother who showed up and put a stop to that. He did abduct a 12-year-old girl the next day, and her remains were found about seven weeks later in or by a shed. On February 12th, Ted can't pay his rent, which is overdue, and kind of feeling like the walls are closing in. He steals yet another car and flees, driving west. He's stopped by the police three days later, and when they discovered his car was stolen, they placed him under arrest. Ted would not go quietly. He fought and struggled with the police officer, but was eventually subdued. This was the end of his run, and he would not escape again. Ted goes to trial in June 1979 for the Kai Omega. Sorry, murders. Multiple sources have said that Ted did nothing to help his case as far as speaking with psychologists or his team. It wasn't so much about protecting himself or having a good case as it was about him being in charge, showing everybody how smart he was. There were two plaintiffs, uh, two witnesses whoa, who placed him at the sorority house, forensic odontologists were able to match his bite to the one on Lisa Levy. Levy? In other words, he's cooked. 
the jury deliberated for less than seven hours, returned a guilty verdict. There was then another trial for the murder of Kimberly Leach. He was found guilty again, no surprise there. Moving on to the penalty phase of the trial, his trusty old gal pal, Carol Ann Boone, would testify on his behalf as a character witness, and Ted, in the most romantic of gestures, asked her to marry him while she was on the stand. According to law, if such a thing was done in court in the presence of a judge, it actually constituted a legal marriage. I mean, guys, that's like the dream, right? Right? In February of 1980, Ted was sentenced to death by electrocution for the third time for his crimes. Caroline would go on to have a baby girl. She said Ted was the dad. Conjugal visits were not allowed, but it was said that the guards could be bribed to allow them to take place. So that's cool that he got to pass on his DNA, right? Uh, Ted would claim his innocence, but finally cracked and let it all out there. He confessed. There's a bunch of interviews with him. Um, I'm looking forward to this new Netflix special to see what else is floating around out there. While he was in jail, the Green River Killer was on the loose. And Ted would actually go on to contact Detective Keppel and tell him he wanted to talk about the psychology behind it. And he want, uh, wanted to offer his services to help, even though I'm sure it was just a tactic to kind of talk about how smart he was. Um, but Ted was sent, was sent to the electric chair on January 24th, 1989. Today is also January 24th. Uh, he was 42 years old. His body was cremated and his ashes scattered in accordance with his will. He didn't have any kind of exciting last words. Um, that's the end of that. That's a lot, right? I can assure you that there is so much more to this case. If I had gone in depth on each one of those incidents from the timeline, we'd be here for three years. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm going to watch the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix Come find our group on Facebook, True Crime Murderinos. I want to hear from you. Let's talk about cases. Let's talk about this special. And until next time, lock your doors and windows, people.